Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us and all the blessings you bestow on us. As we come to look at your word this morning, we ask that you might speak to us by your spirit, that we might know your blessings more and more and praise your name throughout the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do take a seat. Well, Jesus had 12 disciples. Uh, we get to know some of them as we read through the Gospels. Uh, I wonder, here's a quick question for you, I'll put you on the spot, a bit of a quiz. Uh, what's a short word or phrase you might use to describe these different disciples? How about Thomas? Doubter. Doubter. Oh, there's no doubt about the answer to that one, right? Thomas equals doubter. Bit trickier, James and John. Brothers, they're brothers. Sons of thunder. Yeah, whatever that means. It sounds, that sounds a great name, doesn't it? It sounds a great name for a rock band or something, Sons of Thunder. Uh, yeah, they're, they're a bit aspirational too, aren't they? They're the ones that argued about uh, who, who would get the prime positions in Jesus' kingdom. What about Judas? Traitor. Yeah, not much doubt there either. How about this one, Bartholomew? I'm seeing lots of eyes go up the left-hand corner, remembering. I tell you what, Bartholomew gets mentioned in the list of disciples. We don't know anything else about him. How about Peter? Denier. The Rock? Anything else? He's famously known for both those things uh, and as we come to look at the story from which he gets uh, perhaps his less favourable uh, title, uh, we'll see that there's a bit more to the story of Peter. So please have your Bibles open to John chapter 18, uh, that passage that Ben read to us from verse 15, so that's on page 1085. And we seem here uh, to have this encounter, Jesus before the high priest. We seem to have a confusion of high priests. Uh, that's not the collective noun for high priests, but uh, just Jesus is brought before Annas, uh, who's called the high priest, and then at the end of this episode, he's sent off to Caiaphas, the high priest. So just a bit of background here. It seems that Annas was the former high priest, uh, and it seems that he's still essentially the power behind the position. Uh, Annas was effectively dethroned by the Romans who wanted to install their own uh, high priest. Uh, but Annas continued to exercise power. About four of his sons, and in this case Caiaphas, his son-in-law, uh, all held the appointment of high priest. Uh, so he's clearly still got some power and influence there. Uh, and perhaps also in, in Mosaic law, the custom was that the high priest would be the high priest forever until they died. Uh, and so the Jewish people, although Annas might not still hold the official title, it seems that they defer to him as the high priest. Uh, 
the verse just before uh, where this reading starts tells us, reminds us something about Caiaphas, the one who holds the position of high priest. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So we know that Caiaphas is a man who would put expediency over principle. He's happy to let Jesus take the fall to, in his mind, protect the people. Uh, so that's the, uh, that's the approach of Caiaphas, but we see in this episode that Jesus will fare no better before Annas. Now John, as he records this for us, gives us little hints along the way to remind us that it's still night time. Uh, Jesus was arrested by the soldiers coming out with torches and lanterns, uh, and here we get those little hints of the fire in the courtyard that indicate it's still night time. Now that's significant in John's Gospel because John makes a great deal about this theme of light and darkness and that it's in darkness uh, that the powers conspire to come out against the light of the world. Uh, we see back when Nicodemus first approaches Jesus, it's at night and that casts some uh, air of doubt over his approach John reminds us that it's night time as Judas slips out to go and betray Jesus. And here we're, we have these subtle reminders that it's still night time. Uh, as John writes for us in John chapter 3, verse 20, which picks up on this theme throughout the book, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. And we see something of that in this episode, Jesus' trial before Annas. Uh, so it seems most of the disciples have fled and Peter and another disciple are trailing along to see what unfolds. They want to stay close to Jesus to see how this uh, plays out. Uh, and as Peter is seeking to gain access to the courtyard so he can keep an eye on proceedings... He's uh, stopped with a simple question. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? A simple question and perhaps Peter was just wanting to avoid the question, not make a fuss, not draw attention to himself. Perhaps he thought he needed to turn away from it in order to get access to the courtyard. Perhaps he was just looking to protect himself. But we all know the answer, don't you? I am not, he replies. He was looking to stay out of trouble, but once he's committed to this answer, it must have been harder and harder each time it was put back to him to deny it. And we have an unpromising description of Peter in the courtyard. Have a look at verse 18. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. In the previous little episode, Judas is described as standing alongside the soldiers and officials who've come to arrest Jesus. And here we see Peter around the fire, standing with the servants and officials. An unpromising description. Peter outside with them in the dark. So whilst Peter is outside, Jesus is on, on trial inside. Although as we see so often in these things, 
It's really not Jesus on trial, but Annas and the Jewish officials on trial. Now, as the scene shifts inside, you can look up all the commentaries and they'll all list all the different ways in which the proceedings happening inside contravene all the basic principles of uh, first century Jewish law. Uh, I won't go into them all, but just recognise that this is completely contrary to fair justice as they understood it. And as they quiz Jesus, they quiz him particularly about two things, about his disciples and about his teaching. About his disciples, perhaps they're wanting to understand exactly how many of them are there. Are you planning an insurrection? What are they up to? What are you preparing them for? But did you see how Jesus answered? They ask about both disciples and teaching. His reply, verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. He, he only answers the question about his teaching. He draws the attention again as he did when the, the soldiers came to arrest him. He drew the attention to himself in order that his disciples most go, might go free. Uh, here again, it seems he's avoiding talking about his disciples to draw the attention to himself. Jesus had promised that none of his disciples would be lost and we see again here Jesus acting in order to ensure that. And so whilst inside we have the master protecting his disciples, outside we have a disciple denying his master. Jesus is saying, I always taught openly. That's not to say he didn't teach his disciples as a small group along the side, but I think what Jesus is saying here is, I, I've got no secret agenda. What I taught in public is consistent with what I taught in private. And so he's saying, if you have something to charge me with, you make the case. I'm not going to add to it. There's enough evidence out there if you want to make a case. If there's something wrong with what I've said, bring it up. We see the reaction of the, the guard and uh, Annas, the high priest, and the like. We, their reaction indicates that actually they don't have a case to make, do they? They resort to violence. They've shown up for the kangaroo court that they are. And so they find Jesus and send him off to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas on trial, found wanting. Outside, Peter is on trial. Another scene change. I, I think it's quite deliberate the way that John has uh, broken up these incidents of Peter outside, Jesus inside, Peter outside again. A deliberate contrast between Jesus and Peter, Jesus' resolve in the face of the powerful, Peter's crumbling in the face of the powerless servants. There seems there's a, another, perhaps a, a, some muttering amongst those standing around the fire. Who's that stranger? That, that guy over there standing by himself. Someone puts the same question to him as the servant girl who let him in. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? 
Peter replies, same reply, a second time, I am not. With those words, he denies for the second time the one who declared in the previous section twice, I am. Then again, amongst the crowd, perhaps a partial recognition from Malchus's cousin, perhaps, a challenge, a denial, and the rooster crows, just as Jesus had predicted. In chapter 13, verse 38, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Well, there's lessons for us here in Peter's denial. We can be very quick to condemn Peter, the coward, in the face of just servants, and he can't even own up to it. But we should be a bit slower to condemn, shouldn't we? Because in many ways, we're no better. We're tempted to deny our faith or simply stay silent when we should speak up. It's not just a matter of us staying silent or denying that we're Christian, staying silent or denying uh, our faith in Christ, that we're followers of Jesus. But when we stay silent and fail to speak up for the truth, what we know to be good and right, and maybe we do it for similar reasons. We don't want the argument We don't want the attention. I don't have the energy to engage in that discussion right now because we fear ridicule or condescension. But it's not only even in our words or our failure to speak that we deny our faith in Jesus. We can do it in other ways as we deny our faith through our thoughts and actions. Because Jesus went through this, Jesus died that we might be saved in order that we might live for God. Jesus died that we might be freed from slavery to sin so that we can flourish and live obedient lives as God has made us to truly be. Jesus has ensured that we've been freed in order that we are able to do good. And so every time we act as if he hasn't, every time we act as if we're still bound by sin, every time we long for the things that Jesus died in order to save us from, we deny Christ and our faith in him. And I suspect as we think on that, we don't need any crowing roosters to remind us that we've all been like Peter. Now, on one level, we might say that Peter's denial is fairly petty, really. It's like one of those convenient white lies that we often tell, a lie of convenience uh, that just makes life simpler. The lie we tell the telemarketer or the person knocking on the door, yeah, fairly harmless, isn't it? Peter just told a white lie so he could continue to stay in the courtyard and see how the events unfolded. 
Well, at one level, it might be seen as petty. Uh, but the focus of the text on it, the Jesus' prediction of it, seemed to indicate a degree of seriousness beyond that. But as we look at that, as we think about that, we can kid ourselves too, can't we? That our failures are just petty, insignificant. They don't really matter. Our petty denials, our failure to speak. Because we think when the big moments come, we'll boldly proclaim our faith in Christ. As I was up on the, uh, the base camp men's convention, uh, we had somebody speak who, who'd been over to northern Iraq with open doors. Uh, and as ISIS had come through towns and painted the symbol of in uh, uh, for the Nazarenes, those who follow Christians, they paint them on the doors to know which houses to target. Well, people in other cities in northern Iraq boldly painted that same figure on their front doors to, to hold in, in solidarity with their brothers and sisters being persecuted just down the road. And we think when we're put in those situations, maybe then we'll be bold enough when those big moments, when the soldiers are at the door or, uh, or, or our lives are on the line, then we'll boldly proclaim our faith in Christ. But when somebody mentions it on the train, we're quiet. But that's all right, because when the big moments come, we'll be bold. Do you, do you think like that ever? Well, maybe that's a bit melodramatic. Maybe it's just the conversation on the train or the big opportunity to speak in front of a crowd. When I'm given that big platform, then I'll proclaim my faith. As I'm being awarded my Oscar, I'll make sure that I thank God first, my gold medal. Do we think like that? I hate to burst your bu bubble, but for most of us, those big occasions will never come. And so we'll never be forced to be bold, will we? But let me tell you, whether they come or not, our ability to be bold then will be based on all those small decisions to be bold in the everyday life. All those small and petty and insignificant ways in which we deny Christ actually matter then and if and when those big occasions come. It's all fairly heavy, isn't it? Let me give you a word of encouragement. Jesus knew what Peter was like. God knew what the disciples who he called together were like. God knew Thomas. God knew James and John and their aspirations. God knew Peter, what he would do and what he was like. Peter and the other disciple, who is most likely John himself, are there the others have scattered in the face of this opposition, yet God chose them as his witnesses. God chose people like that to build his church. 
God chose feeble failures like you and like me to do his work in the world, to bear witness to him, to build his church. And as God was able to use Peter and Thomas and James and John, he is able to use us as well. While Peter was outside failing Jesus, Jesus was inside preparing to die for Peter's failures and for yours and mine. Jesus was inside the true shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep, the one who would die on behalf of the people. The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, take away Peter's sin, take away our sin and bring forgiveness. So how then should we live in the light of this? How should we live in the light of the forgiveness that Jesus brings us? How can we live as faithful followers of Jesus? How can we be more like Christ and his resolve and less like Peter's crumbling denial? Well, I think uh, we can learn something as we just unpack Peter's failure a little more and find out what was truly going on. Because in many ways, Peter's action here is uncharacteristic of what we know of Peter from the rest of John's Gospel and the other Gospels as well. In fact, just moments before, Peter was willing to fight and die for Jesus, wasn't he? He declared his willingness to die for him and now he's unwilling to even be associated with him. Peter's often characterised as a coward who was just not brave enough to stand up for his faith. But we know that that's not really Peter, is it? He's always the first one to stand up, always the first one to speak out, always the first one to put his uh, foot in his mouth, uh, but he's brave and bold and willing to speak up. He's not backwards in coming forward. So what's changed for Peter that he's now uh, too timid even to mention his faith to the servant girl? Well, I suspect that behind Peter's moral failure here is a theological one. It's to do with his understanding of who God is and in particular who Jesus is and what he had come to do. You see, it's clear that Peter had failed to comprehend God's plan. He failed to understand that Jesus had to die, that Jesus came into the world in order that he might die. Earlier in John's Gospel, where where Jesus uh, predicts his denial, we read that Simon Peter asked him, asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter doesn't get it. He comes back and he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And this is where Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter wants to lay down his life for Jesus and doesn't realise that Jesus is there to lay down his life for Peter. He doesn't get God's plan. And he failed to understand the nature of who Jesus was and the kingdom that Jesus came to bring about. A little later in this 
chapter when Jesus is speaking before Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, Peter doesn't get that. He was one who wanted to fight for Jesus. He doesn't understand the, the larger nature, the more significant nature of Jesus' kingdom. And so Peter's here, having been willing to die for Jesus, Jesus prevented him. Having sought to prevent Jesus' arrest, Jesus gives himself up. Peter's in turmoil, I imagine. That kind of deep, gut-wrenching turmoil where you thought everything you thought you knew, you're suddenly questioning. I suspect at this point, Peter's not racked by cowardice, but by doubt. He doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand God's plan. And so his confidence is crumbled and he's denied his master and friend. In contrast, Jesus was absolutely certain of God's plan and absolutely certain of his role in it. Back in chapter 12, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He recognised his role was to come and to die. He says, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. It's not easy for Jesus to go through what he's going through. He says his soul is troubled, but he has a clear understanding of why he's there and what he needs to do. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. You see the contrast? Peter doesn't understand God's plan and so can't comprehend what Jesus is doing. Jesus is absolutely certain of God's plan and the necessity of his death. The solution to doubt is confidence shaped by knowing the truth of God, knowing what God is like, knowing God by his word truly knowing God by trusting in Him. And you can see how that can work out in our lives as we have all those moments, those opportunities. You see, the more certain we are of the love of God, the less inclined we'll be to seek the love of the world. The more certain we are that Jesus is the Good Shepherd, that we as His followers can hear His voice, the less inclined will be to listen to the false hopes of the world. The more certain we are of all God's promises in all their fullness, the less likely we'll be to seek the pale counterfeits that the world offers. The more we understand how much we're loved by God, the less we'll worry about what others around us think of us and our faith in Him. 
the more we understand what Jesus has died to save us from, the less inclined we'll be to seek after those things. The solution to doubt is a confidence based in knowing God, knowing Him by His Word, knowing His saving love for us. And as we're clear on this, as we're clear on the Gospel, as we're clear on why Jesus came to die and the forgiveness that that brings for us, as we're clear on the Gospel, we'll have confidence to be bold, to live for Him and to speak for Him to bear witness to Christ in everything we do, in our words and our actions. So in the light of that, why don't we pray now and ask that God would give us that confidence, give us that clarity of understanding Him, uh, that we might live for Him. Please join me as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You love us with an everlasting love and yet we so often go after things opposed to you and so we confess all those times that we deny our faith in Christ, that we fail to speak up for what is true and right, we fail to claim our the name of Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that we fail to live as people freed from sin. And Father, we thank you therefore so much that in spite of this, in spite of uh, all those inclinations, that Jesus is our Good Shepherd, the one who laid down his life for us. And so we thank you for the hope and confidence we can have of the forgiveness of sins through faith in him. Father, give us more and more a thirst for your word, a thirst to know you more and more, a thirst to understand who you are and what you've done for us in Christ, and a thirst to know all that awaits us through faith in him, that we might be bold to live and to speak for Christ in all we do. We pray this in his name. Amen.